This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. .com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, now exclusively clamped down into home delivery during the midst of COVID-19. We're on the precipice in New South Wales and Sydney area, lucky enough to not be completely locked down just yet. So if you're going to have people over at your house, why bother cooking? It sucks. So get Bella Catering, get some delicious food, at least let that help you get through, uh, you know, months worth of face-to-face catch-ups with folk. Uh, and that is what you can do. You can jump onto bellacatering.com.au. They're great people. Glenn and Maria, thank you so much. They've been such an integral part in us bringing you the show during this lockdown and we appreciate them very much. I hope you're enjoying all the President's Men. We have another banger of an episode for you. If you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to John Borson, the assistant to Alan J. Pakula. Welcome to the show. Let's do it. president had been driven from office because the American people had learned the truth about Richard Nixon. But how he had learned the truth, that fascinated me. Nixon's downfall had begun two years earlier when five men were caught spying and wiretapping at the Democratic National Headquarters at an office complex called Watergate. Over at the Washington Post, Two rookie reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, picked up the story. Their investigation would unfold like a political thriller. And so I thought that the part that they played in exposing the scandal would make a movie, maybe even a good movie. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. The 77th minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's masterpiece... All the President's Men is where we find ourselves. You would have just heard from John Borston, Alan Pakula's assistant in the editing room with the man on the set of this movie. What a conversation that was. I had to follow it up with another great person. So here we are. We cheated relentlessly in that last minute. We went into minute 75. We went all the way through to minute 76. We even cheated and came into this minute. But I allowed it because Alan J. Pakula's assistant was the man who sat there and watched him assemble this masterpiece, and therefore he gets special privileges. My guest today, though, knows that I'm on the downhill slope of this podcast, my third, a huge Heat fan. Uh, we have we share many connections. He's friends with the man who led off this podcast, Bill Ibiri. He's one of the editors for who I think is one of the top maybe four or five film critics in the whole world, Walter Chaw, who writes a lot for the publication that this man is the editor-in-chief decider. He's also the VP of digital strategy at the New York Post, and primarily he's a Heat fan, which is why I get to say things like downhill slope of a podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Graham to all the President's Minutes. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, thanks, Blake. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I hope I can live up to uh, your last guest. Unfortunately, I did not serve uh, in any capacity with uh, with Mr. Pakula, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, look, uh, there's always people, Mark, uh, that that I say, you know, you you knowing one heat minute. I used to call on my friend who is a huge heat aficionado and a terrific Australian film critic, Craig Matheson, a lot of the time. 
to follow Manola Dargis um, because not many people wanted to follow Manola. They're like, nah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, give me something else, please. And uh, so I, I, I didn't tell you, but I appreciate you being here because it's, it's almost an unfollowable task. But nonetheless, you're a movie fan. Um, you, you, know, you know what we do here. And I think that, um, on, to be brutally honest, the way that we cheated relentlessly across those minutes is exactly the kind of thing that this scene deserves. Because it's like it would be like talking about the heat parts of the heat diner scene without talking about other parts of the heat diner scene or parts of the heist without talking about other parts of the heist in heat language. But this is the centerpiece of this incredible movie, this beautiful, gloriously lit and blocked and performed and written scene, uh, you know, with Jane Alexander's Oscar nominated performance is in the movie for all of eight minutes. Um, she does a bit of a Tony Hopkins there, gets a, gets a me Academy award nod with like so few minutes um, on, on, I was film. thinking Dame Judi Dench. Dame, yeah, it's, it is a Dame Judi Dench. That, that's what it is. She does the Dame Jude. She comes in and just crushes this whole movie. And Hoffman really, as Bernstein, has been a live wire. He's been energetic. He's been chaotic. And in this moment, he like completely has control of who he is and what he wants to achieve in this minute um, with, with the bookkeeper as she starts to unravel and, and, and reveal things. Let's pump the brakes on our scene. And can we talk about you? I know you're in New York City. You're watching all the President's Men, or at least on assignment by myself, uh, watching all the President's Men again. Is this a movie that you revisit a lot? What's your relationship to it? Uh, I'll be really honest and really blunt here, Blake. I had never seen this movie before. Um, I'd seen a lot of other particular movies. I'd seen Clute. I'd seen The Parallax View. But I'd never seen all the President's Men all the president's men, uh, for whatever reason before, um, which is just really interesting. Uh, and the, I just loved watching it. I've watched it three times in the last three days. Um, really trying to absorb everything from it. There are just so many great stories. It feels like a real sort of parallel experience in a lot of ways to what we're living here in the United States, uh, right now with, uh, you know, widespread sort of distrust in the media emanating from, uh, the Capitol of the country. And it's just, it it was an amazing, amazing film to watch. Yeah. It's funny. It's, um, it's not an unusual experience, which is good. Like I'm kind of, I'm so thrilled that I got to introduce you, but it's like, if you watch, uh, if being a fan of Clued and being a fan of Parallax and you lead yourself into all the presence, like it doesn't feel like any other human being had the, the, the ingredients as a director at that time to go like, this is how we tell this story to be able to balance those more extreme, like extreme. And like, you can have a lot more rope basically when you're telling a purely fictional story, like a parallax or a clue than being sort of within the boundaries of playing in the sandbox of our, we have to be deeply authentic, but also it has to have all those feelings of distrust and, and, and paranoia and, and just these, these power structures that are out to get you. So I'm, I'm thrilled, thrilled that you got to watch it for the first time. And it was interesting in the course of doing research on this, uh, as you put it earlier, just this incredible minute of the film, there may even be some weird personal connections that I wasn't aware of until just now. Really? So, you know, the, the bookkeeper that you referenced, uh, you know, her name in real life, although she's not named in the film, her name is Judy Hoback Miller, and she's still alive. She's 83 years old, uh, but doing a little research into her, as, as I, of course, have been doing, uh, I discovered that her birth name is Judy Graham, 
which is also my last name. Uh, I noticed that she had a brother named David Graham, who is, that is the same name as my father. We're not directly related that I understand, but in looking up pictures of them, there definitely seems to be some resemblance of Graham family, which is really, really interesting and fascinating. And of course, there's another famous Graham uh, who was part of this story, although not part of the movie. Obviously, Catherine Graham yes. was the publisher of the Washington Post during this uh, important and integral moment in American history. Uh, no direct family connections there that I'm aware of, at least. But I think I'm going to have to get a 23andMe or something <laughs> after this to, to do a little uh, DNA research. <laughs> If if I have stumbled into a like a a Graham connection, uh, and and then assigned <laughs> you to talk about it, that is the some Nostradamus shit. Like that is as that is as that is as weird as it gets for for us to align. The it. prophecy is coming true, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh man, no, and, and wow, that's incredible. Eighty three, and yeah, she's unnamed. And and what I love the restraint of these movies, and this is the great thing about. Uh, this is the great thing about all the president's men and, and as a text, it's so layered, it's so rich. It's got all these names that are said, either the, the, the people that are directly involved, but what it intends to inflame people's imagination of the people who don't have names or just have nicknames, bookkeeper, deep throat, etc. cetera. It, it enlivens your imagination. Whereas like, um, later on, by the time we get to the nineties with JFK, like you're in full conspiracy mode, you know, like this one, it's just kind of like, there are people who are confidentially informing, but by the time you hit JFK, it is just like a cacophony of like backstabbing and power structures and all those sorts of things that lead you off. But there's, I think these great kind of movies, you, you struck on something, which is even despite the podcast is these kind of movies are a great, like, Oh, now I'm going to go down a five hour research rabbit hole. I want to read every article about this person. I want to know who it was. I want to know what they did afterwards. I want to know if they were in the cases of, and you know, with this case, particularly because of its importance and its scope, it's like, you probably get transcripts of this person talking at a grand jury, you know, <laughs> like you could probably actually hear the words that they said and that uh, they would have based, you know, some of their insights on. The one thing that I didn't have a good grasp on from uh, the research that I've been doing about this film, and maybe you can shed some light and maybe your, your guest on the last episode helped clear this up, but do we have any sense of why Bookkeeper is named Bookkeeper and not her real name? My understanding from some of the stuff that I was reading was that uh, Judy Hoback met uh, with Jane Alexander uh, in the production of this movie beforehand to get a sense of her character. So it wasn't like she was a, a deep throat character at this point in time uh, in her life and career. And she was unnamed for political reasons. People knew who she was. Do you have any sense of why she wasn't directly named in this film? No, John didn't mention. Um, uh, if I don't know whether it's that they just called her the bookkeeper and they just went, they just went with that. It may be added, you know, like if we're talking about the pure romanticism of the whole thing, maybe it was just a choice, but no, I think um, I, I do have, I do have some Goldman experts um, that I'm targeting for the show and I'll make sure that I actually write that down why bookkeeper was called only bookkeeper because yeah, um, that I've done in my research is that she met um, uh, with uh, uh, Judy Miller, Judy Hoback Miller, um, that uh, that they'd met each other, they'd had the conversations and obviously when they're going through that creep list, they are saying real names of people that they actually are going down the list and knocking on the doors but it's the bookkeeper one. Um, I, don't, I don't know, but it just sounds the bookkeeper, you know, I don't know. Like it turns, it turns a really it, shitty administrative job into a very exciting and thrilling thing in this movie. It's much better than a count. <laughs> yes. 
It's uh, although well, Ben Affleck might Ben Affleck might disagree, but <laughs> no, listen, I I just can't wait for the crossover, the accountant versus the bookkeeper. I think it's what we've all been waiting for. Um, we can totally summer twenty twenty two. Yeah, twenty twenty three at this stage, man. You know better than anyone how many freaking movies have leapt out of twenty twenty. They're jumping into twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one is like put a hundred dollars aside a week. If you if you're still lucky enough to be employed, because there's going to be like six movies a week, you know, to be released on everything. Um, this is a you're you're not as uh, familiar with this uh, film, but can I ask, were you a Hoffman guy, a Redford guy, a New Hollywood guy? When you're watching this, is this like a, a, a putting some puzzle pieces together for you, a Willis guy? Are you you know, as as you're watching uh, this era, is this are these guys uh, your guys? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think uh, if I were forced to choose, uh, I would, I would say I'm more of a Redford guy than a Hoffman guy. Uh, the natural was, uh, was a real key film for me growing up that, uh, one that I've seen at least 50 times over the years. And as recently as a couple of months ago, you know, it's one of the great things about streaming is these things pop onto your services and it gives you a fresh chance to, to dive back in. But, you know, the thing that really sort of, um, resonated with me about the whole and watching this for the first time is just how many like uh, uses and parlance that happens in the movie uh, emanated and derived from this movie originally, you know, things like non-denial denials, you know, it's something we've been hearing. Uh, I've heard all of my life and to learn, you know, that that was something that Brad, Ben Bradley coined. That was really fascinating to me, you know, follow the money is another big one clearly that I'm sure you've talked about extensively uh, and all the minutes leading up to this, but a, a, um, a I did William, not know that this a William Goldmanism, not something that either Bernstein or Woodward made up. A William Goldmanism that is like stuck, yeah, <laughs> stuck, uh, absolutely. And so you know, just hearing things like that um, throughout the course of the movie and, and tracing them back to their origin source uh, has just been really sort of fascinating. And that's why I just love going back to watch uh, you know older movies all the time. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I really sort of, uh, I'm, I'm more of a film lover than a TV lover, although I cover a lot of both in, in my, in my job and my profession, but this, the cinema of, uh, the seventies and, and, and into the early eighties in particular, just really sort of stands out to me and in a real glaring fashion compared to sort of what you see today, just the, the size and the scope of everything, you know, in some of the newsroom shots of this movie, just the number of people that are on there yes. who are, are performing and doing great extra work. The scope of this movie is just, um, it's just fantastic. And of course the performances um, across the board are really, really lights out. And, you know, I, I obviously didn't know cause I'd never seen this before that uh, the bookkeeper uh, here herself, you know, was nominated for an Academy Award yeah, for this performance, which, which uh, you know, just uh, it really makes sense after seeing this scene. There was a great convo recently. Quentin Tarantino was talking about his, he's saying in, in Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola gave himself an amazing problem, which is that after the the incredible Rise of the Valkyrie scene, so many helicopters and things were happening in the background that the movie felt lifeless when thing like a multitude of things weren't happening in the frame, like a, a boat's moving and, and a helicopter's going over the boat and something is like just the, the chaos of the frame is something like, but you know, Coppola gave it to himself on the worst possible scale. Like it had to be a freaking helicopter. It had to be a, a giant boat. It had to be something like that. And he said in his small way, 
in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when he got to Spahn Ranch, he said, I want dogs in every frame moving. Like I want, I want this place to feel like it's teeming with life. And I think that that's what you're talking about here and where I love also with these movies is that you can't lie on celluloid nearly as much as you can lie in the digital formats. Um, even just putting things in the frame. Um, and so, you know, for me, the clutter of the frame and, and these people moving around and this constant movement, yeah, it, it breathes life. And, and, and even in the scene that we're talking about, like the, the, after being in this vista, almost of a newsroom, you come into this like closet of a house, of a, of a, di- a living room. It's so, and it's not a small place. It's like actually a, a reasonable size house, but it feels like the confines of what you're in is there. And I think that that's just something that you just, you know, that's, that's where those throwback filmmakers do that and why they're so obsessed with, you know, having in-frame effects, et cetera, is because it's just, you just can't lie. The, the camera doesn't, if you're shooting on celluloid and you have to put it in the frame, you know, obviously now we have the luxury of a touch-up, but so much of it, if you just do it in the frame, it, there's something, in, I don't know, it's just innate in there that, like, it, it, it's so powerful. And even... Yeah, it's, uh, a, oh, it's an indelible touch that just really... Um, just really, really comes to life when you watch these old movies. The fact that they actually did this, um, when now so much of, of cinema to your point is, you know, done in post and, uh, feels a little bit like cheating. Sometimes everything that was happening here on screen, just cinema feels more vibrant and alive from this period than, than Frank life. It sort of feel like it does today. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's hope that one potential positive thing, you know, just thinking, trying to be that glass half full person at the end of 2020 and into 2021 is that some of the art that comes out of this um, and that life and that vibrance, I think like there's nothing that I miss more than being in like a big crowded cinema and theater and enjoying a movie. So like, I feel like that if some filmmakers have got any cloud to be like, no, I don't want it. I don't want extras in digital. I want a thousand people in this frame. <laughs> like, you know, get that, David, <laughs> be that, that sort of David Fincher ethos these days. No, I want a thousand people in this frame and they've all got to be doing exactly what I need them to do at this minute. We're going to do 90 takes and then we're going to be done. Like I, I, I want to feel those hundreds and thousands of people in the frame and on the screen at the same time. You know, it's, it, there's something special um, about it. Even, you know, it's funny is um, also like on a completely different tangent is like a Lord of the Rings a lot of people talk, you know, big, you know, fantasy epic. There are just some moments where a bunch of guys are dressed as like orcs and stuff and, and they're, and they're running through fields in New Zealand. And when they do that, like, and, and the camera's sweeping around and it's just all practical effects. It just like, I don't know what it does to you, but like, it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Like it's so, it's just unbelievable. And then when you see the digital touch up version, it's just like, you're dead inside. It's like, Oh, this is nothing to me. <laughs> Um, so, so speaking of not being dead inside, let's go to the 77th minute together, Mark. I think this, I want to, I want to, I want to watch this scene quickly so that we can jump back into it. Um, Jane Alexander, Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein and the bookkeeper, really incredible scene, a whole, one of the most magnificent, uh, one of the most magnificent sort of cinematic renderings of like you are working with someone who does something that you can't do or that you're not good at and you steal from them relentlessly. So he's stolen Woodward's ability to sort of be a sponge in a space and be still to make people talk. Um, and so this is just such a, a phenomenal scene for that. This is the centerpiece of the movie. Thank you for being a part of it with me. 
Let's dive into this minute now, guys. The 77th minute, one hour, 16 minutes on your dial. Fortunately, unlike Heat fans, this there are not different versions. Um, you should be looking at what we're looking at, the beautiful posture of Jane Alexander and her very still face right now uh, in that frame. Mark and I are going to watch it. You guys are going to listen along. We're going to come back and talk about it. Never in so many words. How do you like it? Oh, just milk. Okay, I'll just milk. Um, I saw on the wires that uh, Mrs. Uh, Stans was in the hospital. Is she feeling better? The uh, GAO, the General Accounting Report, said that uh, there, were, there was $350,000 in the uh, safe of the committee to reelect the president. Were you aware there was that kind of funds from the very beginning? A lot of people are watching me. They know I know a lot. Was it all $100 bills? A lot of it was. I thought it was an all-purpose political fund. You know, for taking fat cats to dinner, things like that. $350,000 for dinners? <laughs> How was it paid out? That's the discipline, Mark, of this show, is to end in an, such an unbelievable minute right on a cliffhanger as they're going through that information. A great exchange, really warm, and this is where he's now having to tactfully ignore concerns. A lot of people are watching me. A lot of people are concerned about what I know. And he just has to go right now in this pocket of this minute. I cannot, I cannot register that. I need to hear what you know. And so he's just like, was it all hundred dollar bills? <laughs> it's just, a, I just, I, 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 I love, I love tact, I love tactfully ignoring people when you're talking to them in, in the context of this movie. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And she's just, I mean, what a, what a centerpiece of a performance she's giving. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, one of the sort of interesting things I think about, about this scene in the context of the movie at large is, this is sort of the real first time that we get to see um, either Woodward or Bernstein really sort of in the domain of a female. Um, other times when women appear in this movie, you know, um, obviously there's a lot of newsroom interaction with a couple of, uh, with a couple of female reporters. There is the scene in Dardis's office with sort of the shrewish secretary. There's of course the sort of the outdoor restaurant scene early on in the movie, about 20 minutes or so in where Carl Bernstein sort of flirting with Sharon Lyons. This is the first time when uh, the men who really dominate this movie are entering a female environment. Um, you know, uh, the Jane Alexander bookkeeper character uh, is a single woman at this point in time in real life. Uh, Judy Hoback's husband had, had died two years before this happened. So she was living alone. She had a small baby in her house at the time. Uh, it's not really clear if she was living with her sister or if her sister was just sort of staying there um, temporarily. But you really get to see um, an interesting uh, interaction and engagement there. Again, when um, this really male-dominated movie enters a female space. And the way that um, Pakula frames and lights this scene, I think, is also really interesting. Uh, clearly, um, uh, Dustin Hoffman is going into this home. Uh, he sort of barges his way in, uh, looking to take a cigarette uh, from <laughs> off of a coffee table. 
Um, but the way they shoot this and the way that the scene is lit, it's almost lit like an interrogation scene, Absolutely. even though it takes place in her home. Um, she's sitting, you know, in this really beautiful wing back chair in the corner of her living room. And Dustin Hoffman is sitting on the couch. Um, but the way that the light um, is presented in her face and the way she's sitting forward with her really, really just uh, regal presence, um, but the bright light and the shadows that happen, um, you really sort of see the, the moment um, with Hoffman there and, and the way he sort of presses and eventually sort of gets her to crack from her, from her stoic demeanor. It's, it's so great, like you said, that it's an interrogation, but what's strange or, or what's unique about it is that in a classical interrogation scene, the person who is being interrogated is the one who's got the harshest light on them. Whereas in this scene, Hoffman's, you know, and also like in, in sort of a classic, cool, like almost noirish, like, uh, you know, cop scene interrogation or a classic detective scene or like a private eyes, they've got someone in a room, they've got a light in their face and the person who's got the light in their face is talking quickly and, you know, you know, saying a whole bunch of things and their stoic presence and laconic, you know, one liners are just like coming in and like making them eke out all this info. And if you look at it in the context of this scene, Hoffman is the guy who is framed like the interrogated, who's framed like the person who's confessing, who sometimes can't help himself but to sort of default back to that Bernstein like whip, you know, thinks like so fast and can speak so quickly um, uh, that that Jane Alexander's sort of very really great sort of tempo in her speech is is the is the counterpoint and the counterweight here, but it's. Um, I, I love that Bernstein almost feels uncomfortable everywhere that he is in this movie. Like that's what I love about the this scene so beautifully. It's like she's very comfortable. She's just, you know, she's got, you know, just a very casual wear. She's there. You can see her tinkering with her necklace. She's sitting in that comfortable chair. She even though she's got the straight posture, she looks comfortable. And he's leaning. He's a ball of energy. He can't he doesn't know how to sit in a chair. I just love Hoffman in the, in this scene for like all the ways that he says that he's out of place. And I think your observation that this is a, this is finally the female domain is such a spot on one. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> Hoffman's laughing about the fat cats for dinner, you know, 350,000 for dinner is, huh? Is, is, is a great performance. <laughs> and you could tell it, it was just, he was just really in the moment there and the way that he's able to transition. He's just such a, a spectacular actor. And in this scene, sort of really watching the, you know, the, the two of them go back and forth in a, in a two-hander kind of an environment um, is really something else. And, you know, uh, the the Oscar nomination uh, that uh, Judy Alexander got for, or sorry, Jane Alexander got for this role, it, it really comes across clearly in this scene. The sort of waves of emotion that wash over her face yeah. just in this one minute alone are, are really impressive to think about. You know, as she says, uh, in the sort of top part of this scene, a lot of people are watching me. They know I know a lot. So it, it, it goes in clearly with part of, you know, uh, as I've been hearing in other episodes that I've been listening to of this incredible podcast and I'm, such, I'm so thrilled to be on, you know, it really goes into that whole paranoia thriller thing of the 70s. Um, is she really being watched? Maybe, probably, possibly. It's unclear, but that was just sort of the the general mood and vibe of the country and you get that from her, you know, she's in her own abode, but she's also not super comfortable. You can tell she's a little bit probably more rigid than she would be. Clearly there's a reporter in there and clearly she knows that the stakes 
of this conversation and how it goes are could not possibly be higher for her um, personally, professionally, for everything. And watching her face, um, the way she purses her lips, um, the way that sort of her eyes shift around a little bit, the way that she sort of retreats her head back a little bit when she doesn't want to answer a question, um, her silences speak as much um, as her actual words and verbiage in this scene. Yeah, it is... It is a deeply underrated skill to have such a glorious camera trained on you and you have to do basically nothing and convey everything. Like I, 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 like I feel like she's like a, she's a volcano that's about to burst, you know, like there's just something simmering underneath and it's so great. And the very best film actors particularly because obviously when you're a stage actor it's different you've got a bigger canvas of emotions that you have to convey you you've got more immediacy to the audience who's receiving you but also the distance is close uh, it's, it's sometimes farther away in, as far as the minutiae of what you're doing and here like you said like slight tilts like it's almost like i need you to operate within one centimeter one inch of where you're sitting and convey everything that can't be too far a lean. It can't be too far a tilt of a head. It's like, she's, it's almost like her, you know, where you'd normally have a mark. Her mark is like, is a, is a three dimensional shape. You can't get out of this box that you're in. And so the most I, I find every tiny movement is like huge. It becomes this cacophonous thing. Like you just like riveted by everything that she's doing. It's, it's really, really, really special. And, and the one thing that, I wanted to touch on was um, it, uh, just on just on the comparison is like when Dustin Hoffman's on the roof of the Q Hotel and he's flirting relentlessly to get you know to to get information um, uh, out of that out of that assistant when he's flirting you could tell that like he, he wants to have a laugh like he's he's a he's a cheeky guy and I love that here he's like three hundred fifty thousand dollars for dinners which is a funny line like I saw this movie excuse me, I saw this movie, maybe it was pre-lockdown, like early in Oz, like uh, there was a cinema in the city in, in Sydney was like playing like uh, old movies uh, every Monday night. And I get to see this with a couple of my friends, Garth Franklin and Stu Coote, and we, we saw it. And that line caused a big laugh in the theater. Like like there was a, it was a pretty full theater in, at the time, you know, this is pre-COVID. And we all had a cackle at that line, like $350,000 for dinners. But I love how he has to really like the 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 scientific alchemy of that line is that he has to kind of break, but then go. This person is not for me to flirt or joke with. Like I have to be, I have to continue to stay within myself and on point because she is clearly fearful. And you said something as well that I think is so great about the domain of women, as we have escalated through this sort of chorus of closing doors it is the women who are more attuned to danger and the the fact that they're being watched than the men like and even some of the women and, and maybe just be the older women or the more conservative women who've been in have been around these structures for longer their perception is i would never tell anyone because it's disloyal like what we were doing is right like the default setting is that what we were doing is right but you can see the younger women here who've been here are a very aware that things are dodgy, that things that maybe shouldn't be going on are going on and b that danger is coming. And especially there's, you know, um, 
just another wonderful scene that comes up um, a little bit earlier, and I'll get her the actor's name because I, I don't want to forget. I think it's um, uh, it's Millard, no Debbie Millen. So it's Debbie Millen's um character where where she's like they go back to her house because they're not sure what she's saying, and in the time that she's left the house, in the time that they've left the house, at the time they re-arrive, someone has gotten to her in their mind, and I just think that that like that is mm-hmm. really etched in in this scene as well. That like people have visited the bookkeeper's house to ask her if she's talking. Uh, absolutely. It's, um, uh, it, it is an incredible performance and, you know, sort of going back to touching a little bit on what we were talking about earlier, the way that, uh, cinema and the reaction to cinema has changed over the years. It's just striking to me that this performance, which is fantastic, um, but also really quiet, um, and reserved and powerful, um, was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. You know, generally you think that particularly in the supporting categories for Academy Awards, the way things have gone over the years. You think of big showy speeches, you think of fiery monologues, you think of sassy characters. This is almost all internal. And that is such a powerful thing and something that I think um, continues to sort of uh, amaze me about this movie is just how different of of a performance this was. You know, this year she was, um, she lost out the Academy Award to uh, uh, one of the supporting actresses from Network. Um, but you know, nominated alongside her this year were Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver and <laughs> Piper Laurie and Carrie, you know, which are, are two fantastic performances, but could not possibly be any more different than what she's bringing to the screen here. Yes. And so it, it's just, um, it's just phenomenal that that was, that that was recognized and appreciated and shown, shown the love, um, by a committee of her peers, um, how powerful a performance this was. Yeah, I think uh, the only modern equivalent I can think of is George Smiley, which is the the um, uh, Gary Oldman performance in in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is just like yeah. that is a whole movie of this kind of performance that is just a sponge. There are di- there are more wild and vibrant and and you know somewhat maniacal or reserved you know characters that are happening, but the whole modus operandi of that entire movie is about never revealing what cards you have, and so. When I when I watch this, I like I can't I can't think of really small performances that seem to get the attention. It's often like gigantic stuff. Like and sometimes you see a small performance and you're like, wow, like that was such an incredible but not showy performance, but it was just powerful. You know, uh, Chris Cooper and Little Women is someone I think of like that. Mm-hmm. Like didn't get a nomination, and you go, wow, that was so amazing and so powerful and like such a short time to be on screen. But yeah, it is a it is a real art form. And again. When you are just shot from like your, you know, your second button, you know, all the way up to the top of your head and you're, you know, thinking of it, not as we now think of it on phone screens and laptop screens and TV screens. Yeah. Like if you're actually <laughs> thinking about like people staring at you on a gigantic screen and scrutinizing over every muscle of your face moving to, to convey an emotion. Like, I think it's really that that's all the more restrained and special when like, you know, that's the same place that Tom Cruise you know, is attempting to kill himself in another Mission Impossible movie. Your face is up there; it has to be just as riveting. Like, and she, and she does. She is every single time. And you know, another thing uh, when you <laughs> you said Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I thought of cigarettes, and that's just clearly another thing that's just so uh. different from this film to then. I just uh, in 2020, it's impossible to imagine a stranger coming into your home. First and foremost, it's 
just such a different world and landscape these days. But then so coming weird. and sitting down even your your couch even and your then neighbor. smoking a cigarette. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, just a, a perfect stranger coming in, sitting on your couch, firing up a heater and, <laughs> and not even asking permission. Like, do you mind if I smoke? You know, even in 2020, that's a weird question for a lot of people, but it's just funny the way that that, that, that comes through in this scene. And that's, I think another part of the humor sort of, of, of Hoffman's character, the way he's sort of like interacting and playing with uh, his cigarette, you know, in this minute and a little bit later on, you know, the coffee gets brought to him by the bookkeeper's sister. So he's just, and it was also interesting that he takes milk with his coffee. I would have figured a hard scrabble newspaper journalist of the seventies who smoked in a pack a day would be a black coffee drinker, but Listen. this guy mixes in some milk. What's going on there? <laughs> Listen, Bernstein is an enigma wrapped in a riddle. The guy's apartment looks immaculate. Immaculate. Yeah. He's He loves, like, jazz and beautiful, like, old records and a piano and stuff like that. Like, it looks beautiful, whereas Woodward's apartment is chaos. The guy smokes like a chimney. He, he takes his coffee with milk. And also, like, what what um, I've come to learn from watching this movie is, like, Ber- Carl Bernstein was an avid cyclist. And... And for like a lot of his life. And so like was a relatively fit guy would ride in and out to the paper and, and was known to like cycle all the way through Washington and things like that. And I just can't imagine it's like an eighties rugby league player in Australia. Like the guys that come off at halftime, instead of taking a swig of Gatorade, (laughs) they're just having a cigarette. And you're like, like that doesn't exist in 2020, like jumping off a field to like have a, to have a cheeky dart after the, uh, after the game that doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, I, I, look, this movie's bad for, you know, someone like me, I used to smoke and I just watched this movie and I'm like, God, why don't oh, I smoke? Here. Why don't I smoke again? Like, I mean, is there anything, like, what, what could possibly happen that's worse than 2020 than me having a cigarette? Um, but, but no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I can't remember, you know, when I was a young kid, like my mom and dad smoked and I remember like us having ashtrays in the house. And I think that like, we were 90s kids. It was just the tr- – like, like I was born in the 80s, but like by the time I like have real recollection of it, it was like late 80s, early 90s, and my parents had moved the smoking to the balcony, like to the balcony of our house. Like it had gone out of the house, and I think only on like special occasions like New Year's Eve where they were drinking with their friends or whatever that like the cigarettes would come inside the house. But yeah, I, I, I can't imagine what it's like when you walk into a house and there's just like an ashtray on the on the side table. It, like it feels like an alien world. And just a, a pack of smokes on the table that you can just clearly ask a stranger for and they'll come in. I mean, clearly that the, the asking for a cigarette was a way to get inside the house and get out of the potentially prying eyes that were uh, that were outside that may or may not have been watching uh, bookkeeper's house on that given night. Um, but yeah, that, that part just really sort of tickled me pink, the, that particular way that he got in and the way that he used it. And, you know, I think another thing um, in some of the research that I was doing on this, I listened to um, in, in All Things Considered, which is a, a radio show in NPR here in the States, uh, that was conducted back in 2012 at the at the 40th anniversary of of Watergate, uh, which was really pretty interesting. the The name of the report was Watergate: All the President's Men, but Women Too. So this particular interview focused on the female characters in the movie, um, particularly the ones who were either not named or sort of left out, like Catherine Graham and 
you know, as we talked about here with Bookkeeper not really being named, but um, Judy Hoback spoke in that interview and, and she came up with a really interesting quote that sort of, I think, lends some, some depth to her performance, uh, to Jane Alexander's performance here. She said, I wanted to say something but was afraid to say anything, especially to reporters. But I felt frustrated that I didn't think the truth was coming out. So you can tell that she wants to talk here. And um, the really interesting thing about the interplay in this, uh, in this particular scene is the way that Hoffman has to figure out the right way to, to present these questions to her in such a way that will get her to speak. Um, clearly, this person wants to get something out. But uh, he's got to do the dance and figure out the right way. You know, as we talked about earlier, he tries that flirting. That doesn't quite work. So he goes a little bit more um, uh, of, a, of a direct uh, approach, which goes in the minutes after this where he starts giving out the letters to try to get her with the silent nods. But I, I won't cheat too much uh, on my particular <laughs> minute. Yeah, I will allow a small amount of cheating. But, um, uh, but, <laughs> but, but no, I think it's like that is what is amazing. The micro arcs in this movie in conversations and in exacting and extracting information from sources is the thing that like really gets me jazz to continue, uh, you know, unpacking this movie every single time is because it is like this entire movie is an interrogation. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it partially an existential, like professional obsession interrogation. And then there's literal interrogations. And then there's an interrogation to whether the story in, in, in what they know about it matters. And it's just this constant interrogation of all those elements. And in this particular scene, like you said, it's like, it starts out with him just bullocking his way into the sister's in, into the bookkeeper sister's kindness by going, oh, can I can have a cigarette just as the bookkeeper herself is saying, I don't want to talk to a reporter. And then just clo simply closing the distance and taking away the physical barriers of a door or of a staircase or of a, anything and actually sitting in front of her, he can then like stare at her and, and his eyeline is great because she's got the, she's got the position of authority and, and even her posture and everything like that. And he's that hunch guy looking up and he's kind of just watching every movement that she's doing to sort of, I want to just, I want to just eke out something what is actually jiving what are you answering how many hundred dollar bills well she answers that one so he's like okay well i'm going to keep doing questions like that and so yeah i just love that flow because um he seems to have a couple of modes like if his charm doesn't work if his charm doesn't work and his bullocking doesn't work like it does with dardis um down in miami Mm -hmm. AKA, AKA Burbank, according to the, the wonderful Monica Castillo, who, who is from Miami. And it's <laughs> like, that's not Miami. They, that's Burbank. Um, but, but, uh, you know, in that moment, Dardis, you know, you know, I'm going to tell, you know, I'm going to tell my editors that you're not willing to talk, etc. That whole flow of information is more of a, a blustery, but yeah, just the finesse here is so great. And, and, and to, and to your point, it's, the, the genuine fear and fr fear and frustration, fear and frustration of those two things. Who's going to be, who's going to be an accomplice and, and the pressure unfortunately usually is on the people who are in servitude of like these powerful people who want to protect themselves. You know, like there's a strange thing in this one, no one's involved in anything. And then I think just after this scene, people start saying, I was involved in this much but I didn't make the call. I didn't make the decision. It wasn't me. Like that, that person made the call or that person had the controlling interest. And so that's what, that's what becomes really fascinating uh, later on as we start to see that all sort of ramp up. 
And there's also the pent up emotion, um, you know, that, I, that I sort of got to with that quote that I just gave you from Judy Hoback herself. You know, clearly she's been having these conversations with, at least with her sister in private. And the way that, um, you know, Sloan Shelton, I think the character is bookkeeper's sister, yes. <laughs> um, sort of plays an accomplice to Bernstein here by inviting him in in the first place and, and offering him that cigarette and giving him a match to light it. And then bringing out coffee cup after coffee cup to keep him there, uh, to not shoo him away, which you would think a lot of sisters might be really protective of somebody, particularly if they are privy to such sensitive information that that could get them fired, that could get them hurt, that could get them killed. Um, clearly, there's been a lot of back and forth that we don't see on screen here between bookkeeper and her sister talking about this and the way that... Um, you know, uh, Sloan Shelton's bookkeeper sister character facilitates this conversation and keeps it going and keeps it moving. Um, it's a real, I think, a really interesting and and sort of more of a subtext than text kind of thing that's happening here in this scene. Yeah, I had I had always read it as a bit of that reflexive, you know, in some ways a kind of reflexive politeness, you know, and like that feels like a throwback to a, a more tight knit community and a more sort of ultimately trusting. Um, sort of community approach of like, oh, someone's at their house and they're in here and like, would you like a cup of coffee? Like, that's just reflexive. But a couple of moments ago for folks who were listening to the show, if this is your first episode, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. But in the 75th episode, I was talking to like a a, a emerging actor, Bo Roberts has popped on the show. And one of the things that Bo said, the way that he read it is, he he said like, I look at, well, he continued to look at the bookkeeper played by Jane Alexander and say, imagine the unfathomable stress of this person. Who's just a bookkeeper who goes to work every day and everything's fine. And then they come home every day and that the fear and the frustration and all of those things. And as you alluded to, like absolutely confessing a whole bunch of stuff to her sister, but never to a reporter. And the sister's like, well, why don't we tell the mm-hmm. reporters? And she's going, no, we, we can't do that. And then the sister going the way that, Bo's reading of it, which is the way that I'm definitely taking a look at it right now. And I think is a great reading is she sees this as an opportunity to relive, like to, to actually be a, a way to relieve her sister, like a way that like the burden, the burden now is no longer like squarely on her shoulders and like, you know, sharing the, you know, it is a colossal couple of truth bombs with these journalists, but it's like <laughs> the, 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 that, way that she like gives her the permission to share, I think is just incredible. Like, and I think that's a great reading and, and, and I think, yeah, it's such an underrated thing. Like her sister, totally like every other goddamn person in this movie to this point could have slammed the door. Like her sister is the arbiter there, but the, the why of why she lets him in and the why she keeps making him coffee and the why for me, I, I then exactly as you've started to do is like you start to really head scratch and stare at her and stare at her motivations and go, why is she doing this? And I think a really great potential reading is like relief. Like she has been stressed out of her mind. Her life has drastically changed very quickly. And, and this is the only way she knows she's going to be free of it. Exactly. She's cleared her conscience and her sister helped her get to that point. Yeah. It's, it's really special. I can't think of I can't think of many other I don't know whether it's many other movies um or, or kind of movies of this type that rest on like rest on people 
who are so calm. I don't know. Like it feels like I mean, deep throat, <laughs> deep deep throat's a deep throat's a genre. Like you know the 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 source, but like you know if you look at a lot of great journalist slash journalism source movies, the source is a big character. Like they can be a big character. Like you know one of my favorite filmmakers and I know yours, Michael Mann, like the insider, like Jeffrey Wigand, Russell Crowe's character is a big mm-hmm. character, l- l- large in scale, like large as a, larger than life as a man, larger than life in personality, all that sort of stuff. And, and when you look at movies that are about sources, the source is like in turmoil about giving you the information or, you know, is, is, is playing you, playing you around the bush. But Jane Alexander is just like, I don't know whether it's the whole inverse of your expectations, but her matter of factness like is something that really gets to me as well, Mark, when I watch this, I'm just like, I can't believe that although she takes a while for all of the detail to come out, like she's just matter of fact in this is what they were doing. Like, this is what they were doing. Very rarely emotional yeah, it, in any of the whole scene. It, it, it's, it's really striking. And, you know, particularly something that really strikes me about it. i um, looking at it from a 2020 lens is the way that, um, People reacted and trusted the media at this particular point in time in the world. You know, the um, at a couple of different points later on down the road in this movie, um, you see some of the uh, comments, whether it's from Spiro Agnew or other the attorney general at the time, um, working to actively sow distrust in the media, pointing out the um, the political leanings and tendencies of of Woodward, of Bernstein, of Ben Bradley, of the key players in this movie. But the fact that, you know, um, uh, Jane Alexander's bookkeeper character here really trusts in Woodward and Bernstein to, to do the right thing as the source where she can relieve this from her conscience. You know, maybe she's telling her, her priest or her father, or, or if she's religious, that's not really totally perfectly clear from this movie, but, but, the person who she chooses to relieve this burden to is a reporter. And that's um, uh, something, you know, I think that particularly here in 2020, uh, that certainly wouldn't happen in that sort of a way. And that's just really sort of something striking to me that uh, in this time, people did have trust in institutions, did have trust in the media. We couldn't trust the government. So the only other people who could help us were these big institutions that, that could speak truth to power and even anonymously, her getting this um, this material out into the world—that was who she looked to to be able to do it. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, I, I've spoken in an upcoming episode to Matt Zolzitz, the great Matt Zolzitz, and he said, you know, one of the things I say to many guests up to that episode was like, I loved this project and this movie because I kept seeing and drawing comparisons to our contemporary times Com- drawing comparisons to a, a, a combative political state against the media and, a, and, and media being attacked and dwindled and threatened and all those sorts of things. And yet some of the most powerful journalism ever comes out of a time when you're under, under the pump and under that pressure and under attack. And then, and, and then there can be a rebalancing if you like. And so I was really thrilled to do this thing. And at the time I was talking to Matt, and I'll share with you, I just, Matt's like, this movie's now a fantasy. <laughs> He's like, it's no longer, it doesn't feel like, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it could happen in real life anymore. This is as fantastical as like a, you know, as, as Star Wars. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, that that concept of people meeting together on moral terms, you know, like, and, and having universe, like things that people, people as human beings can universally agree to that like, 
people using a slush fund to do lies and do illegal espionage is illegal. Like we can all agree that that's bad. Like you can, you know, I think even you and I right now could talk about like Nixon compared to the current president. Like you would have Nixon, like you'd pick Nixon. Like you'd never in like five years ago, you never would have even said those words ever. Like, yeah, totally. I would pick Nixon versus a current president because at least like, you know, internal espionage of his political opponents if that's one of the worst things that he did, which it wasn't, but if it was one of the worst things that he was doing, um, that would be enough. But yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think about this and I, I think about the, the potential bookkeepers who are, who are spilling the beans. And then you, you feel like, man, how much more, uh, how much more hesitant would, you know, a Judy Halbach Miller, um, slash Jane Alexander bookkeeper character feel about talking to a reporter when you know that there's the like propagandistic, you know, right wing arm of the pol- of the political machine that is like there ready to discount you and splay stuff on the news about how you're a bad source or whatever the case may be. And, 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 you know, I, I just, you know, a, a, an evil widow, like plotting against, you know, powerful, you know, good people and whatever. Like, I just feel like, it's, I think about those things sometimes and I, and I, I despair, I despair at a mark. Well, absolutely. You know, the, um, uh, whistleblowers, uh, are, are frequently named now, uh, on, on, on sort of both sides of the political fence, particularly through what we've been going through in this country here over the last couple of years. But yeah, it's just such a different environment. And, you know, getting back to what you said a little bit about, about Nixon, that was my other personal connection uh, to this movie. No, I don't know Richard Nixon. <laughs> Never did. Mark is but, not a um, crook. Mark is know. not a crook. <laughs> I'm not, but um, it's interesting. Uh, so I was born on August 6th, 1974, which comes up as um, uh, one of the final title cards here in the movie. Uh, again, a little bit clearly past our minute 77 here, but at the end uh, of the film, uh, one of the, the title cards that comes up on August 6th, 1974 uh, Richard Nixon vows that he wasn't going to resign. And that was the day that I was born. And then three days later he resigned. So, <laughs> you know, you can say lots of things about Richard Nixon. Um, clearly not a great guy <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but at least he had um, some semblance of, I don't even know if honor or dignity is, is the right word to, to use for it, but to admit that he had done wrong, to know that he had been, caught and to uh, walk away um, uh, from that situation. Clearly he got pardoned by, by Ford shortly thereafter when um, Gerald Ford was sworn in and, uh, you know, sort of soaked off the rest of his days. But he came forward and uh, admitted defeat finally after being pressed and being caught with the tapes and all of that stuff. Um, but at least he, at least he did do that. And, you know, if, I, I just, I don't see that happening or whatever happened in with this particular situation we're living through right now, that like admission of guilt and defeat. Yeah. I, I mean, even just admission to a, a admission to a wrong, like not even the, as big a scale as <laughs> we're talking about. Like I was factually inaccurate. I, I was factually wrong, you know, thousands and thousands of like on live television, blatant inaccuracies. And then, Unlike, unlike journalistic, um, entities, there's no retractions. There's no like 
you know, worrying about getting sued. It's just like, no, I said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I wasn't wrong. No, no. And, and just like utter like denial. Let's just, just move on. It's like the most infuriating relative like that you're having an argument with that just like they feel like they're right. And you're like, no, you're actually wrong. Like you're wrong. I'm, here's the here's Google. Like you're wrong. No, no, no. That's not how it happened. And you're like, oh, no, nah, I can't. You must be trolling me because I can't do this anymore. Like that's it's that that's the thing that gets me, Mark, is like there's not even – what what I what I relish is the the oasis of this movie where facts are facts and that people did illegal stuff and that and and that Nixon Nixon may have absolutely been correct in saying that political espionage on both sides of the political sphere was happening in like large or small scale. But when you're in the White House and in the administration, you have the power of the United States government at your disposal and the power of millions of dollars of slush funds and you're doing illegal shit with them, you know, you know, spying on someone from uh, as a Democratic Party member, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, and, and doing some doing some rat fucking, as they call it or something like that is small scale. <laughs> it's, it's small scale than like actually having an like paying for people to spy in a, in a in a calculated domestic espionage scheme where you're in charge of it like that's that's a completely different thing and but at least then at the end of it all the facts were agreed everything was wrong he made the calls we had the orders and the what's refreshing about the Watergate case which I think is more refreshing than almost any you know uh, toppling of political parties or toppling of a bad CEO or any of those things is there is a culture that surrounded Nixon of all these people. And I love that in, at least with the Watergate trials, apart from Nixon, who got pardoned, the entire chain of command who did illegal shit were all held accountable at a variety of ways. We're all jailed. We're all fined. We're all like disgraced to, to a certain extent because they followed the orders, even though like there is that thing of like, you're following orders, but you're doing illegal stuff. Right. You're doing illegal stuff and people were held to account. I just can't, in a modern, in a contemporary context, I can't imagine that that's the case. And that's in my country, not just, you know, I, I hate the thought that I'm being like, oh, we're all hoity-toity and great here in Australia and we're in the perfect country. No, that's not us. That's New Zealand, right? A couple of, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand cases to the right. Um, yeah. yeah, like, um, yeah, that's that's not us. But I, I, I genuinely think that, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, you know, admission of any things being wrong or incorrect or admission of illegal things. I just, I think to, to get, to get that Guernsey to, to be a politician in the, in the contemporary context, it's almost like never admit to fault ever, even if that is to prove your integrity. Deny, 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 right? Deny, deny, deny. It's just, it's infuriating. (laughs) Um, I, I completely concur. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel what like a great ta- scene I, f- I feel like Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift reviewers have got to answer for more than the United <laughs> States president. If you gave folklore, uh, sh- sure- if you gave folklore a shit review, the Taylor Swift stands are like knocking on your front door. But if you're, well, the, even if you gave Taylor Swift an, an eight, eight out of ten, ten, like the uh, the pitchfork uh, uh, writer did, uh, people will come after you. So yeah, and. Yeah, it's it, it's it's sad um, the way that that whole situation Emerson went down, but it just really goes to show um, uh, the the power that the media held and the trust that people had in the media at that particular point in time. Um, it'll be interesting to see what um, clearly 
the media, the way that it's fractured and spun off over the course of the last, you know, 45 years and changed since the events of this movie take, took place with, um, you know, significantly more politicized, um, uh, uh, coverage, uh, emanating out from a particular viewpoint or a particular angle of the political spectrum. That's clearly done a lot of, a lot of damage to trust in the media. And, um, you know, as, as someone who works in the media, uh, it, it's important for all of us who work in this industry to continue to try to, uh, to do the right thing, to advance the right stories and to, and to try to work to win that trust back. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's been a real treat talking to you. And, uh, and, and thank you so much for navigating this huge scene. And I'm so thrilled that um, uh, not only did uh, you watch this movie for the first time, but for the first, the second, and the third time, and probably a few additional times, just this scene with me. Um, thank you so much. And uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I love, um, I love Decider. Um, and I love uh, the folks that you get to write for Decider, like the great Walter Choi, who's been a guest of the show. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Uh, thank you, Blake. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This was a fantastic movie, and I will be sure and circle back if it turns out I am, in fact, related to Judy Hobart. <laughs> oh, my God. No. You're, you're coming back <laughs> 100%. If there's a 23 in me that I find out, you, like there will be an emergency bonus episode where we'll be talking in great detail. Amazing. Thanks again, Blake. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're doing a great job with this pod. You couldn't have written that. You couldn't have written that Mark Graham may be related to Judy Graham in some weird extended way. Wow. Unbelievable. Judy Herbach Miller, the bookkeeper. Mark Graham, my guest. What a legend he is. Mark is the editor-in-chief of Decider, a really terrific publication with terrific and really just great people with integrity. Walter Chaw is enough. Friend of One Heat Productions. If you know that Walter writes for Mark and for Decider, you know they are the goods. Mark, of course, is their editor-in-chief at Decider to check out everything that they are doing. At Uncle Grambo, G-R-A-M-B-O on Twitter is where you can find most of Mark's stuff. Um, an absolute thrilled to have him on the show guys thank you so much for listening if you do want to continue to see some new bonus stuff um jump onto our patreon at one heat minute uh because you're gonna see an exclusive bonus weekly podcast coming up with myself um if you do that if you want to also uh, go and donate there's a little donation link but in these tough times if you can just share share subscribe rate throw an itunes review on there everything helps we hope you're enjoying all the president's minutes We are flying through episodes and wonderful guests. This has been another one. We'll catch you on another episode very, very soon.